You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is a special episode of Labor Relations Radio in that our friends over at the Labor Relations Institute are launching a new podcast called Left of Boom. And given that its hosts, LRI's Phil Wilson and Michael Vandervoort, have both been guests several times here on Labor Relations Radio, they asked me to talk about the UAW strike on one of Left of Boom's first episodes. So although this was recorded about a week ago and things have changed slightly with the UAW strike, the strike is still going on. And here is our conversation on LRI's Left of Boom. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Good afternoon. This is Michael Vandervoort, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Phil Wilson. Phil, how are you doing today? Good. Doing good, Michael. Good. I know we saw each other earlier, and we work in the same building, but we're in different offices. But we have a... Uh, a special guest for the Left to Boom show today, and our guest is Peter List. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Well, I am doing great, and thank you for having me on your inaugural episode. If it turns out to be that. If it turns out to be that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So We're not if sure. If it yet. turns out to be that. If not, um, thanks for being here, and we'll, we'll put you on show two or three. We're recording a okay. few episodes, so I'm not sure which order they'll drop. But uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the the strike, the UAW strike against the big three. Um, and we, uh, we wanted to have you join us because uh, you had some interesting takes, I thought, over the last week. So I think today is day number 10. And we're going to we're going to jump in and talk about the UAW strike. So, um, Phil, why don't you start us out and talk about kind of the current set up uh, what they've done kind of breaking the model pattern bargaining and where we're at sure well peter and i had a great conversation about this and that the, like that's what spurred you know today um yep and and the beginning of that whole conversation so peter had uh you know tweeted something I, I, what what was the tweet peter it was, it was sean fain was it was, it was essentially a brilliant move by sean fain to call out the single plants of each of the three automakers due to the fact that it is causing layoffs up and down the chain and potentially putting those laid off UAW members, part of the striking, you know, the striking union with those three automakers onto the unemployment rolls. Yeah. And then my, so my call was to object because I, feel like that this is kind of a stupid strategy. And then now I hadn't, I hadn't like got all the way down to your, the unemployment, you know, um, part of what you said, which, which does kind of make sense. The, my, my question to you is I, I, I'm curious whether that was actually thought, like if that was like part of the plan, I don't, I, I kind of question whether it was just given the way this whole thing's unfolding, but it raised this whole, like, is, is Spain like, you know, crazy like a fox, or is he just crazy? And um, I think, like, that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Well, so interestingly, Fain had since come on and said that his 
preference was to do the nuclear option, which was to strike all the companies all at once at all the plants. And so it sounds like it was more of a uh, inner circle strategy that was developed. Well, if he had done that, I still would have said that's stupid, but that would be way less stupid than I feel like what they're doing right now. And maybe stupid is overstating it. Like I'm not, I'm not saying they're not going to get a deal. And, and I'm not saying like if they can get out of this without having to spend a bunch of money out of their strike fund, like that, that isn't like, that's like that, that is smart. I mean, that, that, if, you know, if that's kind of part of the plan here, like that, that's a good goal to have. Um, but, but my point is, is sort of a little bigger picture of like, is this, this is a strategy that for sure is going to get like PR hits and going to get like a lot of press, which obviously it has already. And it's going to continue this week. Biden's going to be on the picket line tomorrow. Trump's going to be on the picket line the next day. There, you know, this is going to be the story, especially since the writers have settled, sounds like. So, um, so that, you know, that, that it's designed to do and and because they're saying it's unprecedented and because it's like it's it's different you know that is getting a lot of publicity so to me though the big question is 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 this actually going to work so like the nuclear nuclear option that you just mentioned striking all three plants all, all of them all at once that would totally work also would be unprecedented but would be that would be much more like the UPS situation. We're going to bring the companies to their knees. Now, the downside of that plan is that it depletes your strike fund like as rapidly as you possibly could. Um, the the other problem, and and the reason why that's unprecedented is what Michael started off with, which is typically there's a pattern bargain contract, which means that the three companies essentially agree to sign on to whatever deal gets negotiated. And historically what's happened is the, the UAW picks the weakest gazelle. They uh, negotiate with the company that they feel like they have the best leverage against, which can be for a number of different factors. But but in any event, like they, they pick that target, they negotiate a deal with them. If there's a strike, they strike just that employer. They don't try to strike everybody. Um, and then that, deal whatever gets negotiated gets signed on to by the other two so the reason that that strategy i think makes sense in a in in a situation like this is that you avoid doing this nuclear option that fane talked about which is where you have to have your entire membership out which depletes your strike fund faster so they supposedly have if they if they took out everybody they have like 11 weeks of strike fund if they only took out one of the companies then they have like 33 weeks of strike fund which is a which is a much harder pill for whoever's getting struck for them to swallow. So it increases the union's leverage um, if they can keep them out that long. So I feel like that even though that is sort of the traditional way of doing it, I feel like that's the traditional way of doing it because it works. I don't know, Peter. How, well, how do you... well, Fane's, Fane's response to the traditional way is that he doesn't want to be a traditional UAW president. And he didn't do the handshake. He came in after years of UAW corruption at the top and said he's going to be a different dude. So, And I think there's a couple other ingredients we're missing. One is the leaked messages that came out from the inner circle from Jonah Furman 
yeah. which he referenced a couple of times that they didn't want to do par- pattern bargaining, or he was excited that they would finally break 70 years of pattern bargaining. And then the other part of that is I think you're dealing with three different auto companies now, you know, as opposed to the big three, you've got GM, which is the biggie, but then you've got Stellantis, much smaller European owned. And then you've got Ford that didn't take the bailout. So they're in a different position economically. So they may be wanting to break the the pattern bargaining style, not to mention the umpteen other foreign auto plants or foreign owned auto plants here in the U S not to mention Tesla. Right. Uh, Like, yeah, I, I agree. He wants to be different. That that I think, I think part of the issue is like, there was a lot of wisdom to pattern bargaining and even, even accepting for a minute, what you're saying, which is these are now three different companies. You, You know, if you could get all three of them to sign on to the same deal, like if, if, if at the end of this, you're going to have three separate labor contracts with three separate companies, you know, like the rich contract at Ford and the in-between contract at GM, and then the, the, the lean contract at Stellantis, um, you know, like, are, are they going to all expire at the same time? Probably not because it's going to, you know, they're going to probably end up not having to bargain as hard. Like Ford, for example, is not part of the expanded strike that happened this week because he said that they were, you know, making progress there. I mean, you could you could easily end up the UAW could easily end up at the end of this with all of the worst kinds of problems that you have when you're negotiating against like three huge like chunks of your membership are tied up in these three companies. Um, and I mean, there is you know whether you like it or not, there is wisdom to tying them all three together, having them all expire at the same time. Um, there's a lot of efficiency that gets created there. So what they're doing now is they're spreading their own bargaining team across three different deals. They they apparently seem like they're going to negotiate three different deals. Um, I, I I don't know if it's I, I don't know it, the the old way seemed to make more sense from a leverage standpoint and from a administering the union standpoint administering those contracts from the business side. And I, and I think part of that um, difference is, and we kind of chatted about this a little bit, Fane seems to be a different kind of character. And I don't, I don't mean this in necessarily a derogatory standpoint from as I say this, but when I watched the night before they called the strike, the entire Facebook live video, and he started injecting Bible quotes into it mm-hmm. and how he talked about how he prayed before he, he ran for president. I'm like, okay, so he is on, and I don't mean this again as a derogatory standpoint or a phrase, but he's on a, it's a holy war for him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he keeps injecting economic and social justice. And so they're not going to back down and, and capitulate like the old UAW guys would. Yeah. I think that's totally fair to say, like he's, I mean, he, he's, he comes out of like the socialist, uh, uh, like burned down the town. You know, like I, yeah. I really, I really feel like, and Jonah, you know, is, is in the same camp, right? Like, you know, he came from labor notes that like that bunch um, is more about the cause than they are about any particular deal, which does make them unpredictable and makes them, um, 
probably challenging to deal with if you're one of the big three. But like, are you actually going to burn down the town? You know, because like at the end of the day, their fame was not popular. Like, he, you know, he barely won the presidency. Um, the all every one of these workers has like the best job in their town. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they all sort of signed up for um, for this like scorched earth deal, right? I think if they feel like and that, and I think the, the auto companies you're now seeing them like they're floating around the stuff that they've agreed to at the table, and I think the average auto worker is like that's pretty good. Yeah, we should go for that. Now, I don't think that they're there yet, but like the longer that they're out, um, the more pressure there's going to be to like get this solved. And you haven't really put the car companies, you've put them under a lot of negative press pressure, but you have not put them in under much economic pressure. Like they're still just over 10% of the UAW members are out. Um, this last strike is probably more intended to like piss off you know, customers of the cars, then, it, then it's going to do anything to try to slow down production. Like they didn't strike another production facility. There are these layoffs. You talked about that. I, I like there's, there's certainly some, you know, production challenges, but by and large, these companies are still making cars. Michael, well, I, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So a couple of things that I saw today that I thought were interesting that are a little, a little bit of a tangent, but, but two things, number one, we published an article on our, our LRI blog this morning, and, and I saw a similar article uh, that was published in the, I think, at the Free Press. Um, they're they're not only on they're not only on strike against you know their the kind of their biggest single company or big, biggest constituency, but they've got a bunch of other smaller strikes running across the country. The UAW is really strike happy right now, uh, and they're really pushing the envelope under under this new leadership and. You know, I, I mean, I think that's kind of what the membership voted for. If you can't call a 10% turnout of, of, a, of an election representational or whatever it was, I think it was only like 10% of the membership voted in that election. And to your point, Phil, Fain only won by 500 votes. So it's not like he was voted in with a, you know, a mandate, but he, he definitely took the, the, the bulls by the horn and is, is running a, a different kind of UAW. The other thing is that, some of the labor side uh, education folks, Harley Shaken and William Gould and, you know, Stanford and U USC or wherever Shaken is from, you know, they, they were likening Fane to Walter Ruther in the paper this morning, that this strike could have the same sort of impact that Walter Ruther, when he, you know, and, and it could transform labor and it could transform the wages of the economy. I, and I'm like, for real? I mean, yeah. these are smart guys, but I, I just don't see so so I think Fane is a is a kind of a he's kind of assumed a mantle uh, in a way to Peter's point a, a bit of an evangelist he he's he's come in he really wants to take advantage of this uh, moment um, certainly the uh, the idea of employee empowerment is at a kind of a peak right now you know everywhere right and between UPS and the the UAW they're trying to set a tone and. And then you've got, you know, you mentioned Trump and, and Biden. Biden's going to go on the picket line. I don't think Trump is actually going to a picket line. I think he's going to a non-union facility somewhere outside the mainstream and kind of, he's kind of low-keying it a little more. He wants to have more of a stage for his rally type thing. But regardless, he's still going to show up there in, the, in Michigan and, 
you know, tell everybody how bad uh, the leaders of the UAW is and how bad the companies are for EV and all this kind of stuff. So there's there's a ton of stuff going on in the UAW right now. And, you know, they, I mean, it, I think this is all driven by Fain, and I think he believes it. So I don't know if he's crazy, but he certainly has a vision, it seems, which mm-hmm. is to, he, he came in as a reformer, and he's totally living up to that. And at least the labor side press and some of the mainstream press seems to be buying it. Yeah, Peter, what do you? Well, the Walter Ruther comparison, I can see where they're going with that. But the problem is when Walter Ruther was around, there's only three auto companies. Right. Now you've got like 10 of them, right, well, or, or and, more. And they weren't organized yet. Like, like right. yeah, Ruther is probably spinning in his grave uh, at that comparison. And, you know, like, well, Anyway, whatever you think about Walter Ruther, Sean Fain is no Walter Ruther. Now, Sean Fain has definitely like got a you know a new playbook. Um, well, he's he trying to model that. himself that way. Yeah, he's, I, he's modeling himself. You know, the stand-up strike versus the sit-down strike of the '30s. Yeah, so he's purposely doing that. Yeah, the sit-down strike, like shut down. You know, again, that comes back to like, do you have any leverage and? Right now, you know, now look, this strike might expand and it sounds like Sean, you know, if, if, if what he said is true, like the nuclear option is what he wanted to do, then whoever talked him out of that, you know, I'd like to know who that was. Cause that, uh, you know, uh, that I think is, that's the bigger problem here is you can, you can get all the press and you can get all the negative publicity that you want for the, for the big three, but you at some point have to get them to agree to what you want at the bargaining table. And if you don't, you're either going to be, you know, your members are going to start demanding, like, look, just get this thing settled. We want to, we, you know, let's, let's go back. Or um, he's not going to get what he promised. Um, neither one of those is a, is a good, you know, situation for him. Um, so, I mean, we'll see. I can also be completely wrong. It sounds like he made some progress with Ford. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe he's getting the deal that he wants with Ford and is going to try to like shove that down GM's and Stellantis's throat. In which case, you know, maybe he is the next Walter Ruther, but I I'm not seeing it. Well, GM, of course, they've got uh, more government backing and and they could probably afford it. Stellantis, on the other hand, seems to want to play hardball. Yeah, and yeah, they've already said like if we agree to this, we may ship you know, 18 plants worth of jobs elsewhere mm-hmm. or it'll yeah. shut them down. It's a big, I mean, that, that is a, that is like a major risk to the Stellantis bunch here. I mean, like if you were going to pick one of the three to go after, which one would you pick? If you to win, to win yeah. a good contract Ford, probably yeah. Ford. Yeah. yeah. GM maybe because they've got the, the That's government, what I was, I was yeah, wondering. government grants. Right. And the government, you know, might sign on to help pay for whatever, you know, they agree to, but. Right. You know, there was a time I grew up in Detroit and I worked my first HR job. My first labor relations job was with at our UAW represented plant. And, and this was in, in Lansing, Michigan back in the mid eighties. So they were, you know, it was, it was the beginnings of the Japanese, you know, and Korean and so on. So there was a lot of change going on then as there is now all the different kind of change, more uh, international competition as opposed to like making a transition to electric vehicles. But the UAW always was 
the best negotiator, the best union. They had the best contracts. They had the best benefit, to, almost to the point where they were so rich that it was to their detriment because, you know, it was like it was it was hard to keep winning, right? Literally, you know, the kind of the opposite of uh, winning as we define it today. Um, and then and then and then it melted down on in, in 2008. And I kind of feel like, you know, this 40 percent. I know they're not going to get a 40 percent wage increase, but 40 percent wage increase, reestablish COLA, reestablish retirement. You know, there's some like the, the press has been using audacious demands. Right. There's some big demands here. And, and that to me has echoes of the UAW of old. But it. I, th- the, I don't think there, there's a cautionary tale behind it. It didn't work before. They they right. they bet too big, and and I get why they're doing it. I get it, but I I have a feeling that it could come back and bite them. Whether it's in this, you know, now in the in the strike piece or later on as they as they move towards this, you know, looming big change of EV vehicles. Um, it, I don't think I don't think they're necessarily negotiating for the long term strategy. I think here they're trying to go back to the past in some ways. Sorry, that's a wandering off the path. Well, no, actually you, you kind of hit on a couple of things because I think um, part of the thing we're not really talking about is this whole transition to EV, which is going to be requiring 40% fewer workers. And then you've got the tiers that are already built in from 2007, 2008. uh, And they claim to have eliminated those in some places. Right. They have something that's fairly interesting, and and this is still at UPS as well. Um, they have these supplemental workers, kind of like on-call workers, that mm-hmm. show up and they may work three hours a day or five hours a day or whatever it is at a much lower rate. And I've watched one of the videos where some some young lady, mother of five kids or something like that, was saying that she is going to be more stable with strike pay than she is working at, I think it was the Jeep plant in Toledo. Mm-hmm. And because she doesn't get enough hours or it's scattered all over. Some weeks she said she'll make $300, some weeks she'll make $800. But with strike pay, it's $500 steady and she can plan her family. So mm-hmm. there's this there's this underclass of UAW workers that they agreed to back in 2007, 2008. And, you know, those I think is where we're seeing a lot of the militancy and, and feign even you know, trying to fix that. I mean, you know, Michael, to your point, and Peter, you just built on this, but like, I, I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, right? These co- these companies were all bankrupt, so they were, um, you know, they're not they're not going back. Like they're they're they 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 like either were or narrowly escaped bankruptcy. They. Um, are now facing this complete transformation of their industry um, that they may not all three survive. Um, like they're not they're not in a position right now to like go back and agree to retiree benefits and um, you know and, and huge pay increases and all that. Even if you grant the fact that you know there's low touch. There's not a lot of touch labor. There's not a lot of touch labor on the current cars. There's going to be less touch labor on the on the EVs. Um, but again, that I, that kind of brings me back to the leverage. Like there, you know, if there's not, the, yeah, you know, the less touch labor you have, then the easier it is to keep making these cars without a lot of people. 
Um, I, you know, I don't see the car makers in a, in a leverage situation where they are going to agree to these outrageous demands. And so then, then you go back to, well, like, what are they going to get? Uh, and how long is it going to take them to get it? The other thing about that, that Furman, um, you know, email exchange or, te- or Twitter exchange or X exchange, whatever you call it. <laughs> whatever um, it is. Yeah. Formerly but, known as Twitter. Right. But that, you know, they're looking at a strategy that is, uh, you know, chaos going to last a long time. Um, I, like I'm, I'm not sure that's the right play. Like from a leverage standpoint, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's the right play. Well, it, it devastates the communities that are reliant on the workers surrounding the plants, right? The diners and the retail shops and all that stuff. And I think it was one of the think tanks or economic uh, analysis groups came out and said it was $5 billion if it's a 10 week strike or is it? That's if everybody goes three week strike. Yeah. Right. That's if everybody goes out, which that's not, that's not what's happening, but yeah, but, but like in the communities that they are shutting down and, you know, that maybe, you know, like we've already seen layoffs at some of the other plants and there's going to, there's going to be layoffs at the tier one suppliers. And so like there's, you know, the, the, the ripples are going to create a lot of economic impact beyond just these oh, yeah. patients. But I, I also think, I mean, there, there will, there will just like any strike that lasts a while, and even though this isn't necessarily causing a ton of pain right now to the majority of the UAW members, like some of their brothers and sisters are experiencing this pain. And like the longer that they continue to inflict that, um, I think there's going to start to be a demand for like, Hey, let's, let's get this going here and, and get a deal. And uh, I, I, you know, I don't think they're going to get the deal that they want. You know, we'll see. But I, I, right now, they don't have. I don't feel like they have the economic leverage to make the the to make the car makers agree to something that they don't want to agree to. Well, you also have Teamsters affected by it. All the car haulers. True. Yeah, that's true. Not, I'm assuming they're getting strike pay, but I haven't seen anything on that. Uh, I saw something where they said they wouldn't cross picket lines, but I don't know about strike pay or. I don't think. Yeah, why would they get laid off? Yeah, I, I suppose the Teamsters could choose to pay them strike pay right. if they got laid off. Yeah, so that, I mean, that could be. I haven't seen anything about that, but. I mean, they'd be, they'd be eligible for unemployment. I haven't gotten confirmation from other states, but Michigan, the day they went out, the UAW went out, um, implied that they would be eligible to laid off workers, which is what started my whole rant mm-hmm. about this on Twitter. They had implied that they would be eligible for unemployment. Yeah, if you're a Chrysler worker and you're and the plant across town shuts down and you get laid off, you'd be eligible. And then yeah. uh, Missouri confirmed it as well. So yeah. I haven't heard back from Ohio. Yeah, which you know, which reduces the you know the impact on the UAW strike fund that gives lets them keep powder dry. So there's right. that's like that's a positive component to this from from their leverage position. Well, and the other component to that is they may, we, or at least the taxpayers in those states are going to wind up subsidizing the strike. And then if President Biden comes out, as he has said, they're looking at financial aid. So we're going to wind up subsidizing it at a national level as well. Yeah, but it still comes down to like those car companies have to experience enough economic pain 
to want to agree to these outrageous demands. And, you know, until the strike expands, in my opinion, until the strike expands to really like shut down, you know, one. So, so let's just say that they leave Ford alone for a while, you know, shut down Stellantis completely or shut down GM completely. I just, I don't see the leverage position um, changing enough for there to be an out, you know, an outcome as significant of agreeing to 40% wage increases and, you know, and COLA and retiree benefits and all, all the stuff that they're, you know, that they're asking for. Yeah. Well, I don't know what it's like where you guys live, um, but we still have full lots with inventory and we're just out of town moving a son in and up where he lives now, there's like all the car lots are full. Yeah. Interest rates have been like, skyrocketing and right. no, you know, no one's buying houses or cars. Yeah. Well, and we were talking about this earlier, uh, Phil, they probably built, I mean, they don't, they can't build an in, a strike inventory because it's too expensive to big, build a huge pile of cars, mm. but I'm sure they've built some sort of a inventory build up too, to have a, have a little bit of a reserve in case that they did use the traditional pattern bargaining and somebody got picked. But um, I, I ran some numbers. We were talking about this earlier. Um, I saw a news report that said about a total of about 18,300 people are on strike now that they've announced the 38 distribution centers at, at uh, Stellantis and GM. And that's like 12.6% of the, the UAW's membership that, that is made up of the, of the big three. So they, you know, they still have a lot, lot of room to grow this thing, right? It's, you know, to go to the full big three nuclear option, they could drag it out for a long time, which is what they said in those those messages, months of months of pain uh, and turmoil, that kind of thing. Um, do you see, Peter, do you see, um, I, I don't know this. I, I, I used to, when I lived in Michigan, I kind of had a, an idea how the industry worked, but I haven't really been around it for a long time. And I don't know if you know or not, but they shut down distribution centers. And I've seen, I don't know if those are parts distribution centers to the manufacturing plants or to dealerships or both. Do you have any idea? I had, I had just assumed it was parts. You know, if you've got a, in Timbuktu, Iowa or something, if you've got a distribution center that's sending out parts to dealers or, Back to the plants. I haven't seen any specification on it. Yeah, I haven't either. So I don't know who it, who it impacts more directly. You know, the the extended dealership network or the the production. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so my, I think my I think where they're headed next is I I imagine there will be another Facebook Live this week, and they'll probably take out a couple more plants if if they don't get any get any further. Do you, how long do you guys see this thing going? Well, and Ford came out, so notwithstanding the fact that they, you know, that Fain said that, you know, Ford was making concessions, Ford came out yesterday, I think, and said, we're like wide apart. So mm. even though they're, you know, supposed, like, I guess, bargaining the best of the three, um, they're still, they're, they're saying they're not close to a deal. So I think, you know, it's, I mean, if they're going to keep doing it this way, I I think it's going to last a long time. I mean, yeah, yeah just going back to, you know, the car companies have no compelling reason to, to agree to something that they're saying anyway. And I, I believe that they're right. You know, that if they agree to these deals, they are, they are basically going to bankrupt their company. 
So they're not going to agree to bankrupt their company. Uh, no strike is going to cause them to agree to that. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe they're overstating it some, and maybe there is some like in between point that they can get to, but but that is going to take a long time, especially if they don't massively expand the strike, which of course then massively expands the impact on on the workers. And and one last thing, Peter, I'd be curious what you think about this. And we're kind of coming up on time, but the you know the the, the auto work or the auto companies also like at some point can just start locking people out. Right. Like they, they can, you know, if they're, if they're feeling like this is, you know, some sort of a, you know, wildcat type situation, they don't have to just accept the UAW picking whatever random targets that they want. Like they could, they could also, um, they could also put people on the street that would, that would now get strike benefits and, um, you know, there's, there's other tools in the tool chest that they have to create, you know, leverage if they wanted to. So they I, could, I don't know that they'd do that though, because I can't imagine Mary Barra going back onto CNBC, who is like, you know, chastised about her salary and is in tight with the president and all that sort of stuff. I can't see them doing that. I, I yeah, not certainly not now. And especially not this sort of leverage situation, but I think if it was getting, you know, like if if they were doing it like one week here, one week there, one week there, and like pulling these plants, they're off strike, now they're back on strike, um, that would be very disruptive to the point where I could see them going, no, look, if you take a plant out, they're out. Um, so, uh, you know, I, they, I don't they know. could. I, yeah. It's But it's, again, like they're, who's, who's their customer base with the big three? Like other union guys, right? They won't mm -hmm. buy foreign unless they have to. Yeah. Well, some of them do now, but you know, the steel workers would boycott and then you'd see the, you know, teamsters would boycott everybody else would boycott and construction workers, especially. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Okay. You talked me out of it. So, <laughs> so it, let's go, let's do, let's close with over under over a hundred days or under a hundred days. I think at least through October, if not November. Okay. So, you know, maybe under 100 days, somebody will come to the table and then it's just, I don't know that Stellantis wants to. The mm -hmm. other thing that we haven't talked about is, you know, this whole push to EV. What about the unibodies? How many jobs is that going to take away? Because like Tesla's got that wrapped up. They've got those aluminum one fold or one bend bodies. Yeah. yeah, and eventually the big three are going to have to go to that. Yeah, I well, I mean, and there's a lot of other small parts that need assembly. You know, engines, carburetors, and you know, yeah. oil, and yeah, all that goes away with electric vehicles as well eventually too. Yeah, I mean, look, part of this could just be it accelerates the switch to EV, right? I mean, those are um, you, you know, so some some people decide to buy a Tesla, um, some people decide that and you could have you could have i mean the car companies are, are are like going like crazy trying to produce ev vehicles now um yeah you could end up accelerating that i'll go back to the over under uh i will say so when is thanksgiving is that 100 days i don't know roughly i didn't really count probably isn't i think 
boy, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to like, okay. So this goes back to crazy, like a Fox, right? Like I don't, unless they are, unless they really increase the leverage position, I don't think that there's going to be a settlement anytime soon. And I'm not sure that they are going to increase the leverage position. Um, so I, I, I would, I'm going to say over a hundred. Mm. Interesting. The the Writers Guild is, you know, probably settled, although they still have to vote, but that was 146 days. So that's why I grabbed 100. But yeah, I think under, but not by much, like 90, something like that, about 90 days. I was thinking at Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, yeah. If Thanksgiving is inside of 100, I would probably say, or, you know, somewhere that that seems like a that seems like a point where you would, you know, you would want to kind of get things back uh back in place although i mean from the auto company standpoint they i don't know what they do with vacations and stuff around that time they may shut down some plants during that time they, they generally do but yeah they may not be able to one last thing and then we'll wrap up is sure. is the the messaging with Jonah Furman and the whole thing about you know we're going to give them months of pain is that bad faith bargaining i i don't think so i mean I put a post up questioning whether it would be because it, it seems as though um, they want to strike period and they're putting the outrageous demands out on the table and nothing else but those outrageous demands. And I'm using the, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic when I say that, but it, I'm surprised there hasn't been a charge filed by one of the three still Annis or GM probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think wanting, it'll go anywhere. But. Like wanting, yeah, wanting a, 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 yeah, wanting a strike to be unpredictable and to cause, you know, to cause a lot of pain, and like lasting a long time, right? That's up to the companies. Like they, you know, and it sounds. It, I mean, it sounds like they're, you know, behind the scenes there is bargaining happening. Like like proposals are being countered and. Even on the even on the wages, you know, they're far apart. But like, it sounds like the UAW came off of forty down to mid thirties. You know, mid thirties, you're getting. I mean, there's there's been a lot of contracts settled. You know, you, you remember they're bargaining off of, you know, pre, uh, basically, pre, you know, pre pandemic uh, rates and inflation has gone crazy, and so, the, you know, a a thirty percent over four years deal doesn't seem like totally out of whack. Um, so, so it sounds like they're, it sounds like they're, they're negotiating. It sounds like they're going back and forth. So I don't, I don't think the fact that you're saying that like either we hope saying you hope it's painful is just bargaining. Right. Um, so, so what's the part that's bad faith, just that you think it's going to last a long time. I think you're, you're sort of predicting what your opponent is going to do. Yeah, I don't know that it is bad faith, but there's there's some question about it in the uh, Detroit News article that was up there. Yeah. So I posed and, it as a question: Is it? Yeah, and Peter, I think you're right. Like, you know, why not file and find out? You know, and just you know, that's a potential leverage point and a a talking point. Um, you know, I do think their internal conversation. I'd be interested to know who leaked that internal conversation was I got asked that question over the weekend by a friend who texted Mm -hmm. me you know who do you think leaked it and I would 
assume it was a UAW staffer on the inner circle who does not appreciate the labor notes guy coming in, having not cut their teeth with the UAW, and all of a sudden directing communications. Somebody got passed over for a job or something and, and is hmm. pissed off about it. That's an interesting theory. I that's that sounds that sounds about right. Sounds or doesn't ridiculous. yeah, or doesn't agree with the strategy, right? Right. Could be. But yeah, Furman has had it. He's he's an interesting guy, and I think he's up their game on the social media side. I think you were commenting necessarily about Furman specifically, but I think you commented on that last week, uh, Peter. Yeah, yeah, they they certainly up their PR game. Oh yeah. Although his yeah. his tweets are blocked now. Are they? Yeah. Why? Well, because he got outed, and he just I don't know. I don't know actually when he blocked them, but I looked at in the wee hours of Friday morning and they were blocked. Hmm. So That's funny. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we've run up against the clock here. So this yeah. was uh, this was a good conversation. Thanks for joining us, Peter. It was yeah, fun. Peter. I yeah. always like talking to you guys. Yeah, we'll we need uh, to we'll, hang out. I'm sure, and, we'll, I'm sure we'll do this, you know, more than once. Yeah, we need to hang out in the Southwest when we're all out there. Yeah, yeah, sure. and, and I, I like your uh, I like your avatar too. By the way, nice. I just avatar. did that while while I was I on hold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just created better than Bane. Yeah, yeah, it's better than Bane. I agree. That's good. That's funny. All right, thanks, Peter. All right, talk to you. Take soon. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Bye. So that was Phil Wilson and Michael Vandervoort from Labor Relations Institute on their new Left to Boom podcast. And as they get it launched and out there, we'll make sure that we have the links to it on the laborunionnews.com website and in the News Digest as they come out. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or X or whatever it is, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm just a man living a one-eye stand to tell you what I need. Oh, black cream, take me to that place. Wash my sins away. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.